right, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making Movies is Hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. I'm Liz Manashell. <laughs> this week we have the Toronto-based indie filmmaker Bruce McDonald on the show to talk about his newest film, Dreamland, starring Stephen McHattie, Henry Rollins, and Juliette Lewis. Dreamland came out on June 5th, so this is uh, like a week over, a little, little over a week after the movie came out on VOD. Um, Bruce is probably most well known for his indie feature Pontypool, also starring Stephen McCaddy, but he has also directed countless other feature films and episodes for the shows Creeped Out on Netflix, Dark Matter on Sci-Fi, and Heartland on CBC in Canada. There is something kind of magical about that, that the camera became the sort of passport to adventure, like you could get people to dress up and do things, you could get into certain places. But before we get to Bruce... Listen to me! Television is not the truth! We'll tell you anything you want to hear, we lie like hell! This last week, our country has seen a tremendous outpour of protests, riots, and general anger over the terrible racism and straight-up murder that has been plaguing our country. And, yeah, it was kind of affected me pretty hard, and... Yeah, I did. You know, we're not really a political show or anything, so I didn't tweet anything from making movies is hard. But I just wanted to say that though the times are tough, you know, we will get through this, and that hate and fear will lose to love and compassion and just overall goodness. I believe, you know, but we do need to stand together. And you know, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Black Lives Matter, people. What do you think, Liz? I mean, I. Am bad at talking about politics publicly. It's just something. Me, me I, too. Yeah, and also I, I <laughs> <Obviously>. feel <laughs> I constantly feel uninformed, and I feel like why am I talking? I'm this like white lady. Uh, so right. I think yeah, the best thing to do is to be an ally. And what I've chosen to do is to provide um to make economic steps of support so you know donating um donating money to black owned nonprofits, um ordering from black owned restaurants like just trying to contribute financially to the cause i feel like we're in such a contentious place right now that i'm just gonna say something wrong and i'm gonna piss off everyone but it's yeah it's a really horrific time in um in our country right now you know, just sharing love and compassion to people in general is just a good way to do it, to go forward. And, you know, we're going to try to get more uh, people of color, uh, filmmakers on the show. You know, we, we, we do our best in that anyways. Like, that's just always part of our show, trying to bring in people from different backgrounds and not just talking to the same old, same old all the time. Um, but I think we'll just double our efforts going forward to really get some more diverse voices on the show. We'll amplify you. So if you are an artist of color, uh, tweet at us and we will retweet your project and support you in the ways that we can. We want to amplify your work and help you market your projects into the world. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just reach out to us. If you have a movie that's coming out, let us know. and We'll see if we it's a good fit for the show. We can't obviously have everyone on, but we have as many as we can. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out. And uh, yeah, I think we should move on to our article of the week, which is from The Hollywood Reporter. Gavin Newsom says we're going to start making movies again on June 12th. What the hell? That's crazy. <laughs> that's five days from today. Yeah. And that that's like, what, three days after it's in this the past. comes out? It's in the yeah. past when you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. So all the studios will be shooting and everything will be back to normal when this this podcast comes out. Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's going to take so a little crazy. longer. Um, but, I, you know, they released a white paper about all the rules and things that we should be following um, as filmmakers in order to, you know, go back to work, especially for studios and for bigger uh, companies. I didn't read this white paper yet, uh, <laughs> which I probably should. But just some of the things I read in the article about, like, if you're doing casting, like, you, you need to have a plexiglass border between the casting team and the actor if they take their mask off. I mean, I don't know, man. In every casting session I've ever been in, that would be pretty hard to, <laughs> to pull off. Um, but, you know, I think these are all really important things. And for bigger budget productions, definitely doable. I don't know. What do you think, Liz? Uh, you know, it's, I don't... <laughs> I mean, again, we're in pre-production right now, and our SAG rep hasn't um, told us any of these things, and oh, wow. we haven't gotten any guidelines. We are out to an additional cast. We're finally out to our second cast member right now who's considering. So, like, we're making moves. But I'm, I'm all I'm saying is this is well-intentioned. I'm glad that he's green-lighting productions. But when I was reading the guidelines, it felt more like recommendations than requirements, and I'm very... I'm lost a little bit on what is um, official and what has to be done versus what is encouraged. But uh, right. I need to do my homework. So I, I hope that there will be productions greenlit soon. I just, I don't feel the clarity still. Well, I feel like this is more about like, you know, the major studios and the bigger budget, like productions and stuff. I don't know what it's going to mean for indie films. Like, I really don't like, and I don't, and I guess it all depends on what the unions pass down to us and like what they expect out of us. Like what's SAG going to say? Like if you, if are you just going to do all your auditioning remotely and then you don't even have an in-person audition and then you don't even have to worry about those oh, things? Or? Yeah. We're just doing tape submissions, which is fine. I'm totally okay with that. And then, even for Speed of Life, I just had phone conversations with actors. I never, I think I met one of them before being on set, maybe two. I don't think you need to be in person to cast. That's that's not something I'm worried about. And you don't do rehearsals in person either, obviously, due to budget. Yeah, stuff. I never get a rehearsal. <laughs> so, like, whatever. <laughs> so it's basically just, it's not really going to make a difference to you. It's really more about, like, okay, when we get to set, like, following those guidelines that, are set down basically also what i uh understand and oh god someone's gonna email us and tell us i'm wrong about this but i believe sag rates for ultra low budget the day rates increased um from 120 it's like essentially 140 but 120 um to 200 dollars a day so like there's oh, really now, wow yeah so like now and there's a lot of differences in terms of uh the payments of actors in SAG productions in addition to all of these other standards and practices that are evolving. So I just think in general, the low budget indie is going to go through some massive infrastructure changes in the next few months. Wow. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it comes together, but like, especially through your eyes as you make this movie. Um, <laughs> but, but what's the update? Do you guys have locations set yet? Like, no, do you have we haven't dates? Even tried. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think what we're doing is we're out to we're out to an actor for one of the roles. <laughs> I'll just be super vague because I'm so superstitious as a person. Uh, and um, if he says yes, I think a lot of things are going to be based off of him and our other fabulous attached actress. I mean, we have essentially one actress we're in negotiation with and we'll be that way until we attach 
this other role um if that makes sense okay so we were out to an actress she's fabulous and she i think is biding her time to see who else gets attached so everything oh, is wow. contingent on our next attachment and then once we have those we'll have eventually have three people attached then we'll be moving on and we've had i've been looking at audition tapes for the past few weeks me and sean have so we've been receiving emails we've been looking at tape um you know, you did this with the alternate. You're constantly toggling back between, am I going with the best read? Am I going with the people with the farthest reach? Am I going with the highest social media profile? <laughs> like, you know, all these insane specifications of an actor. So what what have you heard from SAG? They, they basically have like accepted your project, but they haven't really told you like when or how you can shoot yet. Yeah, they anything? gave us a signatory number. Like we're a SAG signatory production right now. But because our dates change from June 15th to what we're now stating uh, unofficially we're August but I don't really know if we will be August because we don't know what hoops we have to jump through for, through SAG so we're probably going to revert back to non-signatory status and have to reapply again if that all makes sense because we don't have the exact date if you lose your dates basically yeah I think that was the last I mean we have production meetings at 2 every Sunday so I'll have an update for, for myself around nice. then but I think basically we're just attaching talent right now and then the talent will be dictating dates wow crazy yeah. um we also have one other article this week uh from uh cnn and it's a really interesting one because it's about uh the amc movies ba basically saying that they're going to be closing their theaters um because they even if the theaters opened up right now like they probably wouldn't be able to make enough money to survive you know so it's not like an official like oh amc is closing their doors but it's pretty much like eh, it looks like that's that's the way it's gonna go you know uh but this article is very optimistic because <laughs> they're like yeah people are gonna go back to the theaters and theaters are gonna exist but they're gonna change and they're gonna be different and they're gonna be more like uh like 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 theatrical plays you know and not like what we know as a movie theater today like maybe it's going to be more of a special experience like going to an Alamo, Alamo draft house or something so I thought that was really interesting to hear <laughs> an optimistic article about uh, movie theaters um, because usually that's not really what we're seeing now <laughs> yeah I mean Tenet is still slated to open in July that hasn't changed I mean I think Wonder Woman changed its dates um, to August if I'm not mistaken but like there's they haven't pivoted. <laughs> so, like, there's still people doubling down on the theatrical experience. Well, if Tenet opens in July, I will be there opening day for oh, sure. Oh. Uh, absolutely. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It, it seems surprising because I was reading some guideline stuff about, like, COVID and, you know, these different phases that we're in. And we're in, like, phase two right now. And in San Francisco, they expect us to be in phase three in August. And I believe that's the phase when we can go to movie theaters, maybe. Um, but uh, I'm not exactly sure. But if that's August, then I don't know how we're going to go see Tenet in July if they're not going <laughs> to open movie theaters till August. I don't I don't know. But anyways, again, as soon as that uh, that sign on the movie theater says we're open, I'll be there. So hopefully that's soon. I barely watched the news, but I was comparing my situation with my partner and my kid to the movie Blast from the Past. Do you remember that oh, movie? Oh, yes, I do remember with that Brendan Fraser and Alicia Silverstone and um, uh -huh. Dave Foley. Uh, and I was just thinking, like, that's what's going to happen to me and Sean. Is like all, like, the entire city is going to open up and we're not even going to know about it. Because we're just still instacarting. We don't leave the house. We don't watch the news. <laughs> right. Like, the whole world is going to, like, change without us knowing. I think 
uh, that's actually not that far off. We really are pretty ignorant at the moment. That's funny. Well, interesting. We'll see what 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 happens in the next whatever weeks, months, <laughs> days. I don't know. Minutes. But uh, one thing I do know, Liz, is that uh, you've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. Yeah, very interesting week for us. Uh, do you want to start with this first one, Liz? Yeah, so this was a Facebook message, right? I remember this coming in. Yeah, Facebook message. And we got a message from Guybrush Threepwood, which is, I, I'm i going to say it, the world's best name. <laughs> yeah. Guybrush pretty Threepwood. pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I'm like now like, should I have a second kid just to like name this child? Guybush Threepwood? Um, all right. Guybush wrote, just started listening, planning to chain it. We just want to say thanks and well done for being honest. You guys inspire. Very sweet. And then Ulrich, of course, was communicative and wrote back. Do you want to take it, Ulrich? Yeah. So I wrote back something welcoming, welcoming and nice to Guybrush. And then he said, Ace, nice to hear back. <laughs> I'm only five or six episodes in. Your Facebook sponsored links have paid off. Feeling particularly film broken at the moment as I just tried something after about a two to three year stop. And I missed the deadline and just took a break. Thanks for getting in touch. And I have 250 more to listen to. Yikes. All the best. And then I wrote something back encouraging, and then Guybrush <laughs> said... Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's weird enough as it is, and I'm just starting out. Quick question. I'm using stills to animate, but I'm not sure what aspect ratio or size to pick for rendering. Any help would be useful. And then he says, got a, got an example at Ever Dance Devil uh, on Insta or Twitter if you want to look. I'll pay you back with a good review on whatever you need to for the podcast. Uh, I'm listening on Spotify, but I'll help however I can. Thanks again, guys. So what do you think? I, I have an answer to this question. Do you oh, have an answer? I have no answer. I don't. I was like, I know what rendering is. I know what animation is. I can't put it together. So I did go to his uh, his Instagram and I, I looked at what he had on there and it didn't look like animations to me. They just looked like really beautiful uh, photos of um, some like action figure or this uh, scarecrow figure that he had, which is really, really cool. But uh but yeah, what I would say for animation animation rendering ratios and size, it really depends on what you're using it for. Because you know, I, I have a little bit of experience with this because we do a, a lot of visual effects, um, you know, for my short films and now my feature film. So my understanding of rendering is like you really want to render it out as big as you can. So like, if let's say your final is 1080, you probably want to render in 4k and then you can um you know put the animation wherever it belongs on on the frame for your composition like let's say you're integrating animation with uh video but i don't know think that's what he's doing i think he's more like just making animations just to make animations so i i would say if you're gonna try to have it be like a final thing that we watch i think uh you know 1920 by 1080 is great 16 by 9 you know standard uh you know video uh ratio um, and I mean, I don't know if these are supposed to live on Instagram and then if it's to live on Instagram, that's a whole different answer to that question because Instagram has all these crazy ratio requirements and things. So I would look up the Instagram ratio requirements if you want to make it for Instagram. But if you're just doing it for video for me to watch as an animation on Vimeo or YouTube, yeah, I would say, you know, 1920 by 1080. That's the way. I went to his Instagram. I'm now following him. And by the way, Guy Bush Threepwood is actually a fictional character uh, from a game. So I was just like, oh, I think I thought your parents just had like a lovely imagination and were really creative. But um, it sounds like it's some sort of 
throwback to a LucasArts game. Um, but anyway, this, oh. this project he's doing, the Uncanny Comb, looks really cool. It's miniatures. It looks a little bizarre. I only see two images and I'm already hooked. Um, so we want to hear more about what you do with this guy. Yeah. So do you see what his real name is or is it just Guybrush is just the you just realized that was a fake name? Well, Instagram refers to him as Guy Wood. So I don't think either name is real at this point. <laughs> <laughs> OK, there we go. Uh, well, man of mystery, whoever you are or yeah. a woman of mystery could be a woman. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, thank you. And hopefully that answered your question was ha- helpful. Lastly, so Dick Nixie on Twitter wrote us back on May 30th responding to our episode with Bradley Gallo. It wasn't oh. Bradley Gallo. No, oh, I think it was it. Justin Curzel. Damn it. <laughs> Hold on. Um, Justin Curzel. Okay. Yeah. And in our uh, networks uh, segment, we talked about um, Universal versus AMC, where Universal made some statement about how they're going to release more bigger projects on VOD as well as theatrical. And then AMC, like, you know, like reactionarily, like, banned Universal movies from AMC theaters, like in a really crazy letter, which if you read that letter, it's very like, you know... I wouldn't want to say butthurt, but kind of like that, you know, very, very defensive and insecure, I would say, Uh, which is, you know, maybe that's not the right thing to say, but whatever. That's how I read it. And uh, he says, I think you guys, this is what Dick, Dick Nixie said. I think you guys really missed the point of the Universal versus AMC thing. Universal stated they wanted to start releasing theatrically and VOD at the same time, which would result in massive loss for theaters, which barely make any money from tickets anyway because of studios. So what is your reaction? Well, it's like my general fear of having a podcast is like I'm not going to say every aspect to (laughs) an answer that I should say, especially when it's a topical, you know, um, (laughs) topical topic. Uh, Point is, I think Dick Nixie is right and we didn't really address it and the podcast we didn't mention specifically that it was going to be theatrical and VOD at the same time like I don't believe we ever mentioned it so he's right but that I also am just thinking we played two sides of the coin in that discussion a lot where we said it was good it's bad it's good it's bad so I think um it's a it's um god this is horrible it's it's a <laughs> complex situation where it's bad for everyone and interesting and provocative so i don't know i'm on board with dick nixie for calling us out but i also feel real guilty for not addressing it in the recording well i think we we talked about the article i I don't know if maybe we just glazed over the details of it a little bit but i think where we, we we basically were just saying that like yes vod releases have been a thing for a while and you know, I kind of felt like this was a little bit of a, um, I don't know, an overreaction in a way because like these things are happening. And then like, you know, not to say that they shouldn't like make a statement saying like, if you don't honor the 90 day window, we're not going to play your movies. Like totally that's understandable. And that's kind of what, um, Regal released like right after this. And so I was just saying that like, it was a little bit of a, a strong reaction in a way where you could have like come out with a more like well thought, you know, sort of more, I don't know, measured response rather than just, you know, because they said this worked out well for us. Oh, we're going to ban you, you know, like, like they were basically like that article from universal was basically just saying how big of a success it was and that we're going to consider doing more of these kinds of releases in the future. Even when theaters reopen, that was all it was. It wasn't like, 
a proclamation that we're not going to, you know, on our windows or whatever, whatever. They're just like, we want to do more things like this. And then AMC was like, fuck you. <laughs> so ultimately, I like, I don't really feel passionately or passionately empathetic towards Universal or AMC or Regal or any of these massive chains because they're massive corporations. And what I think we should really talk about and be concerned about is the art house exhibitors who are suffering pre-pandemic, during pandemic, going to suffer post-pandemic and don't have the capital and the audience to like have these fits that these massive companies are having right now. So whatever, like, I don't know if that adds to the conversation, but I do think I gave Universal a little too much credit as well as I gave AMC a little too much credit in our in our original chat. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is I stand by what we said, but yeah, maybe we could do a better job of outlining the article a little more clearer next time. Maybe, oh. maybe that's right. I don't know. No, but, but like, thank you, Dick Nixie, for saying something and listening to us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dick Nixie. And if you are not happy, if we also ruined this response to your thing, let us <laughs> Probably. know. Probably. I'm positive this, I ruined it. If this was terrible, we'd like to know that too. And maybe you can tell us how we could be less terrible in the future. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but if you want to be like, uh, you know, Guybrush and uh, Dick Nixie, there's lots of ways for you to get in touch with us, including our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mmih podcast that's a way that you can support the show if um you like what you're hearing uh you can give us a dollar a month that would be amazing if you love what you're hearing you can give us more if you want a wonderful pin while they last our enamel pins you can give nine dollars a month and even just for one month and you can get a wonderful enamel pin you can also leave us an itunes review um and uh, that's a really great way to show that you like the show or that you don't like the show we don't actually have very many under five star reviews which is really wonderful thank you everybody you can also send us your questions and topic suggestions to podcast at making movies is hard.com and uh, we'll read it on the show. I'm Lori Craven, and I'm an actress. An actress? Really? How nice for you. I'm Betsy Faye Sharon, and I'm a bitch. I came with a topic suggestion, which I'm more prepared to talk about, but I did want to pitch another idea, Ulrich, if, if sure. you want And it's the idea of, can you be political and build an audience at the same time? So it's more of a conversation mm. than a suggestion. And it goes back to the beginning of our recording today. But I've specifically made it policy to not talk about politics and social media, which I'm sure makes me at least 25% less good of a human because then I'm being <laughs> silent about like important causes right. where we should be vocal about them. But it's kind of like the Dolly Parton argument where Dolly Parton sees that she has customers on the right and the left and she doesn't want to be exclusive or divisive enough to alienate her customers. And yes, that's a capitalist way of looking at things, but I don't think it's necessarily wrong if you are working in a commercial field. Um, so I guess the topic today is, can you be political while also building an audience and what I actually wanted it to just talk about it with you instead of doing off doing the thing we always do which is like me dispensing advice right right yeah I don't know I pretty much take a similar sense to you like especially with this show like we're, we're very like don't talk about politics ever we never have even even you know during the 2016 election when that happened we, we basically 
I don't think we even mentioned it. We I think we mentioned it, but we didn't say anything. <laughs> we just said we're not a political show. We're not going to talk about this. Uh, so if you want to hear about this, go somewhere else, yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and on my Facebook, I I rarely talk about politics, and when I do. Um, I always think I say something wrong or stupid and, you know, I did say something during the 2016 thing and, uh, you know, I got a lot of like, you know, like response that I wasn't expecting from it, from my community. And it was like, oh my gosh. And then it was kind of like a thing, like I'm never really going to do this again because I don't, you know, want that sort of thing. So I did say something about, um, the riots and the protests and everything on my Facebook, just cause I felt like I really had to, and I wanted to say something like I didn't want to be silent and i think i i worded it the way that i wanted to where it was like just how i really felt i guess in a way mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know i mean i think you definitely can like you see a lot of um people who are super vocal politically and you know still have audiences and still you know have um followings you know but i, I mean is it is it the right thing as an artist as a filmmaker to do or is there a one right or wrong i think it's just different you know, I don't think there's one right way or a wrong way. I think it's just however you feel and what you choose to do. I think it should be calculated, though. Like, I think if you are deciding to be open and vocal and political, um, then you've decided to do that. I don't think it slips out and I don't think it's accidental. Like, I very specifically do not talk about it on any social media um, because I have friends and family on both sides. And right. even even saying that, I'm like nervous about the blowback of that statement, <laughs> to be right. honest. I'm like very right. afraid right now. And also, I don't ever feel like I'm an expert on foreign policy or domestic policy. I right. think I'm a pacifist, but I'm, you know, like I don't understand the intricacies of bear and bull markets. And like, there's a lot of things that I don't understand. <laughs> right. So I think it's just an acknowledgement that in this time, we can use our voices, we can amplify things and causes that matter. You can, but um, you'll, you'll be recognizing that you're no longer an agnostic force in, in art either. There are factions in art that are conservative and liberal um, and you'll find your family and you'll, you'll find a home there. I think people need to decide right now whether they're going to be vocal artists because this is an opportunity or it's an opportunity to um, separate those worlds. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like I was struggling last week about this question like, oh, like, is it wrong to not be a vocal artist? Like, is it is are you doing something wrong if you're just being apolitical on social media as a filmmaker or a painter or a mu musician or whatever? Like, is that like a bad thing? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. Like, I, I sometimes feel like I should be more vocal about my beliefs, you know, Um but then on the other hand, it's like, maybe it's just good that I'm just an artist and, you know, a podcaster and I'm providing this thing for the world. And it's a way that people don't have to worry about all the problems of the world for an hour because they get to listen to our podcast that we don't talk about these things. I love that. I was, you know, for Speed of Life, I specifically was trying to cast 
um, an actor of color in the male in the romantic lead role of Edward, mm-hmm. and I um, I brought it up a lot because it just seemed important to me. I'd seen a lot of whitewashed movies, bread and butters, and all white cast, and I wanted to make sure I was as inclusive and possible in the casting process. And I also thought there were very few opportun not few opportunities, but like I didn't see a lot of indie fare with actors of color in my world, that in my like relationship dramedy world. And I remember talking about it with a producer and he said, not a producer that's on board the project, a producer I was working with early on. And he said, it's not your job. Your job is to make the movie as you see it, as it was born in your mind. And it's not your job to fix the world through filmmaking. And it's like something Hmm. I constantly go back and forth on. Is it like every film is um, an economic exchange. It's a way to contribute to the market. It's a way to give... Um, your time and energy, very important resources to something that you care about. So why shouldn't every single decision be a pointed one, right? But at the same time, you're right. Like there is that other flip side of the coin, which is like, we're here to make movies. We're here, you know, to bring people out and help them escape from the trauma of real life. Every decision doesn't have to be... Oh, no, I think I've landed on opinion. Every decision should be political. (laughs) It felt wrong to say the other side of the coin. Right. No, I don't know. I mean, I I just like I think for me, it's like the one thing I can do to make a difference is like things like diverse casting in my films, you know, especially now where I'm in control completely of my destiny in that regard, you know, where I'm raising the money so I get to make the decision. So I feel like I should just be casting diversely uh, all the time because why not you know like and it's also something i personally want to see more of because it is so annoying to watch every show every movie everything that that comes out and it's like not necessarily whitewashed as much these days but they're always like the white people are always the lead roles you know at least like either a male lead or a female lead has to be a white person. You can't have the only white character in the movie be a supporting character. It's just not something you see very often, you know? And, like, every once in a while you'll see it, you know, like Lovebirds is an example, and that's really great, you know? But I feel like we should be seeing that more regularly where, you know, you have the white character be a supporting character and you can have whoever you want to be in the uh, in the lead roles. So that's something that I've always, I've been passionate about for a while. And, uh, you know, something I attempted to do on my first short film on Strange Thing and then I failed at it. And then ever since then, I've made a very conscious effort to not fail. Um, and I've had very diverse casts, you know, since then, which has been wonderful. That's like the thing I can, I can do and that I like to do. And I think as I grow as an artist and a filmmaker, it would be great to be a producer that was able to support artists from different backgrounds and like to take a step back on the creative and just help, uh, an artist of color, like make a movie that they want to make or tell a story that they want to tell, you know? Um, so that's definitely something I want to do as I as I grow and I'm able to produce things and not only worry about my own projects and just like, you know, help other voices be heard, you know, in filmmaking and in art. But yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't know the right answer to this question. It's a really tough one to me, but I think I'm going to continue to to not be political on social media, you know, and just sort of, you know, just talk about like filmmaking and art and the things that are positive in my in my life, in my world and only really like make statements about political things 
you know, if I really feel like it's necessary. Yeah, maybe it's a letting the work speak for itself. And I know this is like a, a fun little segment. You know, it's like the audience building segment. And usually it's like three tips, tricks and trades. Um, <laughs> right. But we're at a Yeah, we're at a really weird moment right now. And a lot of people, um, I don't think silence is ignorance. I think social media is a cesspool for hate and harm Um, but to use your art to um, support causes and use your pocketbook and your art to support causes that you believe in at this moment that's the audience building tip for this week yeah no definitely and I I really liked what you said earlier in this conversation about like you know making it a choice like if you're going to be political on social media, make it a choice to be political on social media. And if you're not going to be political um, and you're going to focus on just making your art speak for itself, then make that decision. But don't don't like be very aware of what you're doing and, and try mm-hmm. not to just do things by accident, because then you're going to that's when you can get yourself in trouble. Like, here's a, one last question just to end this. And I know this is already long, but like, will you ever make a political movie, Liz? Do you think that's like in your future as a filmmaker? Yeah, and and just to be clear, I'm an independent. Like I'm a registered independent. (laughs) Um, So like I'm I you know that there's a lot to unpack there. Um, But (laughs) there are like there's like one thing that I'm incredibly passionate about, and it's the death penalty. I'm in I'm 100% anti death penalty. And I would say if anything, I would make like if anything political, I'd make a film about the death penalty. Like I think there are many other issues that other people would be passionate to make their content about, but that would be the one thing that would be like the hot button topic for me. And for you, do you have anything that you would want to speak up about? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I probably would make a political movie if something if a script came along that was like really interesting to me. And I thought that was like really um, important, but I don't like have a cause or anything that I really want to make a movie about necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I'm this, I'm not opposed to it, but I think it would be definitely more of a genre piece, whatever it was, it would be like a thriller or, you know, maybe even if there was like a sci-fi political thriller that could be made, I would be interested yeah. in making that, <laughs> whatever that was. What about truth? What about the reality? What about the way the old ending tested in Canoga Park? This week, we got sound bites from editors to talk about why they decided to become an editor. And the reason we did that is because we uh, received a suggestion from a reader recently that we should bring on some more editors to the show. Hey, it's Jill Danyanika. I am an editor and director. I didn't go to film school. I went to art school. And at art school, I met somebody who was working in editorial. And knowing nothing about editorial, nor directing actually for that matter, I hounded her for two years until she agreed to help me find a job in editorial when we got out of school. And in the editing room is when I learned film. That was my film school. As an assistant, I sat behind editors and watched their work. That's where I learned pacing. That's where I learned really, really looking at story at such a, such a deep level the subtleties, the absolute subtleties of performance and how you put it all together visually to create the whole, to tell the best story. I think a good editor can make a good movie great and a bad movie way, way better. I think editing is magic. You are putting the story together and you'll find connections that maybe even the director didn't think of on the set, juxtapositions that weren't imagined in script. It's just a fabulous place to be as a storyteller. 
And I think being an editor has really, really influenced, well, it taught me how to be a director. I take all of my skills from editing as sort of a little secret superpower that I have on the set when I direct. And I'll always love it. My name is Josie Azam, and I decided to become an editor after doing a lot of short films in high school. I was like the writer, director, the camerawoman, the editor. And when I'd finally finish shooting and sit down with all my footage, I'd be like, oh, good. Like now I can get to the really enjoyable part. So when I got into undergrad film school and realized that everybody else really wanted to do the other stuff and would happily just let me edit, it felt very luxurious. Kelly Walker. So when I was about 12 years old, my best friend and I started making movies and we'd write and direct and act in them. And uh, we didn't know how to finish them because we didn't have any editing software. We would try to edit on two VCRs, which just was a mess. So when on my 13th birthday, my mom gave me Adobe Premiere and um, I just fell in love with editing. And uh, when I moved to America from Australia when I was 17, I kind of pursued it as a, as a full-time job. And I think what I love about editing specifically is the aspect of the problem solving. Like you have this puzzle, you have all the pieces and there's no right or wrong way to put it together. It's kind of your job to figure out the flow. And I love working with directors and, and I love kind of living vicariously through them, seeing their project and their vision come alive in the editing bay. And, and, and just that one line or that one beat can change the whole feel of a, of a scene. And uh, yeah, it's just been an amazing, um, wonderful thing to be able to do. Ulrich, I wonder if we just switch the player into interviewing people on why they wanted to be in film. I really liked asking oh, people why yeah. they want to be in film. And it's like, if every single time it was the same question, but we just asked as many people as possible from different backgrounds, it would be like this great celebration of why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I, and I mean, I would also like, you know, who knows how long the show's going to go on, but I would imagine it's going to go on for at least another 250 episodes, if not longer. So, <laughs> so. we have a lot of segments of, of the player to do in the future. So if we did like that question for 20 episodes, I think that yeah. would be great. And then maybe we get tired of it and we come up with different questions. But, you know, I, I think um, I like the variety personally. I think it's really interesting to hear different stories and different things from different people. But um, I do agree with you. Those those uh, those sound bites from last week were really great. So, yeah, you want to do that for the next 10 to 20? Let's yeah, do it. Yeah, let's try it. And then if people hate it, let us know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do you guys want to hear different random things each week from different people like in the in the industry? Or do you want to hear why you got into the industry from a thousand different people? All right. So first question, Bruce, is how many days did you shoot on Dreamland? Thirty three days. Ooh, and what was the rough budget, if you're allowed to talk about that? It's under $100 million, but it's probably closer to five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, how long did you work on uh, the film from inception to it being released? I don't know. I mean, when we started it, we started it uh, after we made Pontypool. We started the writing and, and uh, we finished it, you know, last year. So wow, do the math. But, you know, that's like couple of years off and doing other things so you kind of chip away at something it's like uh, building a birdhouse or something how many people were on set for this one 
the shooting crew was probably about uh, 24 people. And then out of all your projects, how difficult was this one? Uh, this was uh, dream, dreamy for Dreamland. <laughs> it was fun. And did we have any nightmares? Not really. Uh, we were in Europe. We drank a lot of wine. We worked with fantastic people. The hours weren't long. They were like in Europe, they shoot for eight hours. They have an hour to set up, an hour and eight hours to shoot, and an hour to tear it down. Uh, very civilized, shot mostly days. So evenings were for dining and prepping and bonding. Yeah, it was great. It was so I'd say uh, on the easy factor, it wasn't easy, nothing, but it wasn't it wasn't painful. There was no pain in this one. What part of Europe were you shooting in? Uh, we shot in Luxembourg City. Uh, and then we shot in a place called Charleroi, which is in Belgium. It's kind of the Detroit of Belgium. It's a kind of an old industrial city that's fallen on hard times. So it was beautiful locations. So you started writing this. I, I, it sounds like we don't want to say the exact date because it's been a, a while. What, what inspired Dreamland? Well, it's funny, you know, because I think the, if I had to just say the, the first thing that came to my head, it would be working with Tony and Steven and Lisa. That was sort of the big inspiration. That was the, like, I don't know if you know this film, but it was a film starring Steven and Lisa. It's sort of a sci-fi. It's about a language virus. Anyway, we finished that and we thought, wow, we should keep going. And the original ending for Pontypool was Stephen and Lisa, the two stars from Pontypool. He was dressed as a gangster. She was dressed as a mall. His name was Johnny Deadeyes and hers was Lisa the Killer. And they have this weird conversation. It's in the movie, but it's at the end of the credits because the producers thought it was so weird. That's where it was sort of born from, I suppose. Plus the impulse to like, hey, let's keep the band together. And then plus... There was a short film that McCaddy made uh, where he plays Chet Baker. It was called The Deaths of Chet Baker, and it's by a director named Robert Boudreau, who went on to make a film called Born to be Blue, which is about Chet Baker starring uh, Ethan Hawke, uh, which Stephen plays Chet's dad. So it's all very uh, sort of connected. But, you know, the, it's not unusual for things to take a long time. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've I've heard a lot about Pontypool because I told you earlier, like I went to Toronto and there was a Stephen McCaddy movie playing at this film festival I was at and everybody was like a buzz about Pontypool and this, this you know, awesome indie genre film. Um, so, you know, it's really kind of interesting to hear that this is sort of connected to that film in a way. It's not, it doesn't really sound like it's a sequel, but it's sort of like inspired by kind of. Sounds it's like kind of like the freak baby of Pontypool. <laughs> Chet Baker and Pontypool had a baby together, and it was a little freak baby named Dreamland. So I think that's the best way to... So it's definitely a parent, uh, Pontypool. Uh, most definitely the mother or the father. And then, you know, as a director, like you're not credited as the writer of this film, but like how involved are you in this, the, the shaping of the story? Like, are you, do you have meetings with the writer and talk about story breakdowns and beats? Or? Yes, yes. It just goes on. Uh, and I mean, Tony's a genius and he's really fun, but he's, he doesn't really care too much for structure. I mean, he does, but he doesn't. So, yes, I, I'm, I'm not a writer myself, but I, you know, most of the indie films that we've done, I've worked with writers from the beginning stages and I'm kind of the first audience and I like to be involved because I, I know that if I'm going to shoot it, I got to know how much it costs. And, you know, it's a night, it's really a, a, a what do you call it? A, a pleasure. It's a, it's a privilege to 
be involved in the early stages because it's kind of that's where you're planning the campaign. And Tony and I have become very good pals, so it's really fun to meet up and he uses me as a sounding board or what about this or what about that? And then we would bring it to Stephen because from the beginning we knew that we were gonna, we were writing for Stephen McCaddy. Like it wasn't, let's write the script and then go find the cast. It was like, no, 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 he's gonna be the guy. So it was really great that Tony and I then would go over to Steve's place, who, who Lisa is his, is his gal, and we would present them with the new draft and they'd have something to say. So it was really a great, uh, great way to do it especially because it's such a nutty movie that it really was kind of a head scratcher at times of how does how to keep how to not make sense but still make sense <laughs> right how to keep us guessing and in the dream state while also telling a story with a like you know cohesive thread to it yeah it's a really weird uh so that was, it was a lot of weird math so it was I mean, it was fun, but it was a tricky thing because I guess, you know, the impulse was to try to stay true to Tony's very strange and slight, you know, surrealistic kind of impulses um, and be in that sort of dream state and not de, not logic it up a little bit. And it's tough in movies because movies, you know, there's such a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of money, you know, you, to me, anything over a hundred bucks is a lot of money. so. You know, you gotta, you're dealing with people that are asking questions like, why is there two guys and why is there a vampire? Why is it, uh, so. What's your answer when people ask those questions that, um, that maybe you don't want to answer? I say, it's in dreamland. (laughs) It's a dream. (laughs) That's the shortest answer. But then if I'm really feeling fancy, I'll dig into William Burroughs' Naked Lunch or I'll dig into you know, French surrealists, or I'll dig into, uh, we had a, it's a, it's a good question you asked, because at one point, I was getting these questions, and sometimes I think I knew what I was talking about, but other times I didn't. There's a Peter Steves, who's, he's a philosopher, head of the philosophy department in Chicago, and he was a big fan of Pontypool. So he brought us there one day and presented this big paper, philosophical paper on you know, so then I would, and I, so after that, I said, Peter, we're making a new film with Steven and Tony. Would you, would you consider coming on board as the production philosopher? So we could, if we have questions like, why are there two guys? Maybe you could help us answer that. And he was like, oh yeah. So he was great. Like he didn't get to come to set because we were pretty far away, but he, you know, he wrote me some stuff about, you know, the history of the doppelganger and kind of what it, what it sort of means in literature and in uh, philosophy. Uh, I should pull out the paper. I don't have it right off the top of my head, but uh, right here. But it was fun, you know, for such a crazy, it was kind of like having a shrink. Uh, you know, you go in and Peter's the doctor and you lie down and you talk to him about, talk to him about vampires. And, you know, uh, anyway, so he quite was, he was quite delighted. So now I think from now on, I'm going to have a production philosopher in every movie. Did you use that kind of source when talking to actors? Like, I find that very often, I mean, you're very respected and very experienced in, in the film industry. So I, I doubt you have any actors questioning your methods or questioning the script. All the time, yes. Or not, you know, you know there's all, they're always asking questions. So uh, sorry to interrupt. 
No, I, it's well, that's good to know, too. But <laughs> I guess I'm just curious, like when you want to just have that open mind and that open flow of logic through the storyline, and there may not always be a concrete motivation for the actor. Do you pull in that um, production philosopher and say, well, talk to him. He has a whole, you know, thesis. On- I, I did that a couple times, you know, I think with and, and encourage them. You know, we would talk and sometimes, you know, when it get onto the deep waters of semiotics and French surrealism and doppelgangers and that sort of thing, I, you know, I'm good to a point. And then I said, well, there's this guy, you know, the production philosopher, he would love to talk to you. So I think Lisa, Stephen, um, maybe a couple others kind of like we'd email him and then he'd email back, but he was delighted to be sort of part of the process. Uh, because it's a funny thing, you know, you know, uh, writing and the writing, you know, one of the things you want to ask yourself at the very beginning of any project is, well, what's the theme or what's the, what's the, uh, what's the impulse? And philosophy is something that's always been there to help us answer those big questions. You know, what's, where do I come from? And uh, where is my, you know, who am I? (laughs) It's these sorts of things. So when you're creating a new world, like a movie, and especially in this case, a movie that doesn't make any sense, uh, you, those, those sort of philosophical questions and dream states are, are quite curious. And that, uh, you know, you can sometimes get lost in the labyrinth, but often, you know, you'll pick up a thread and you'll, uh, you'll either be validated in your impulses to think, oh, okay, there's a tradition of this, and, you know, and off you go. So you said, you know, you, you've mentioned a few times how uh, this movie is a pre- pretty out there and different. Was there any like one thing that you were getting a lot of pushback from investors or producers that you fought for that ended up in the movie? Yeah, I think the two things were why is there a vampire and why is there two guys that look the same? And weirdly, the guys that asked about the vampire, they love they love the fact that there was a vampire. in it. I'm talking about the producers and the money, because I guess they thought, if there's a vampire in a movie, maybe it's a horror movie. And, you know, we don't <laughs> quite know what it is, if it's a horror movie. I mean, it could be, I suppose, but not really. So they kind of liked the kind of commercial idea of a vampire, but they weren't sure what it was doing in our movie. So I just kind of assured them that, uh, you know, this was, a, this was a modern fairy tale that we were making. And this was, uh, you know, an allegory about uh, the current times, and this is a world about a world above and a world below, and you know, you, and then, uh, and then, you know, if, if again, getting right back, it's and I would say it's called Dreamland, so there's a vampire, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but they, you know, you did get those questions, and nobody was out to sort of stop it, but they did have the questions, and they kind of, even the money, and even the guys and the women that were up in the in that kind of rational you know in the control room with the with the levers of rationality they seem to kind of enjoy the fact that um, there were these sort of strange elements and perhaps if the world that we made uh, wrapped its arms around these it would all seem to they would all seem to belong with each other it would all seem intentional and motivated 
I have a big grin on my face right now. I'm a big fan of David Lynch. Like my dog's name is Laura Palmer. So <laughs> That's hilarious. Like, like well, Dream Logic. I, is, David Lynch, yes. I, I love Dream Logic. I love the idea of driving creativity from, you know, different aspects of consciousness that you might not be even aware of. Can you talk a little bit about the creative process for this film? I know you didn't write it, but you worked with the writer and were there other were there like atypical things that you did on set? Um Anything about how you created this open atmosphere? Well, it's funny you mentioned David Lynch, you know, because, you know, he has this great book called uh, Catching the Big Fish. Mm -hmm. And he talks about uh, (laughs) transcendental meditation and stuff. And I don't know much about that particular meditation practice, but I was really fascinated to read that he'd been a student of this. And, you know, the short takeaway from me that I got from uh, this book that he wrote, and of course the films, I adore his movies, is that you know you keep if you keep a door open to the unconscious uh, and don't 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 regulate it too much. You know, cinema is a dream. You know, cinema is is. I always look at TV as kind of like theater and logic and books and novels and talking and people and great stories. Whereas movies sort of have a bit more, uh, or maybe in the future they'll continue to kind of explore that path of big of cinema, sound, picture, dreamy things and moving sound, picture, image things and be sort of liberated from the kind of fascism of, 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 of kind of narrative logic, which is really pleasurable. But when you get into Lynch territory, there's something just fantastic about, not that anything is allowed, because even his films, there's a certain logic to the illogicalness to it. So I guess you know, going into this and this process, what I decided to do was to try to keep that door open. And when I, you know, film is a very collaborative thing. So the DP and the designer and the costume people, I would encourage them. I would say, listen, you know, like sometimes, you know, if you keep that door open, it's called dreamland. Uh, If you have an impulse that you're not quite sure of, please tell me, you know, before you decide it's not a good idea or a bad idea, just tell me if you if there's an impulse. So people sort of thought, okay, and they would start to do that. And they would, for instance, uh, you know, the designer came to me one day, the, per- the costume person, she says, well, we've got these, this kid gang. And, you know, I was just thinking <laughs> of what they might wear. And in my mind, I'm thinking they're wearing hoodies and, you know, tough little Oakland fucking bad boys you know <laughs> and uh she was like well what if they wore little black suits with ties and you know and i was like i don't know exactly why it would be but why not and uh so uh a lot of those decisions that you see in the film a number of them actually from sometimes in the casting sometimes in the choice of location or the choice of you know this or that uh was uh, sort of, uh, you know, impulses or um, to try to, you know, to try to just keep the dream. Like, why does Hercules have two women dressed as little soldiers? And as is kind of, they were written to be kind of like uh, a couple of New Jersey Goombas. But we thought, well, maybe, maybe there are these two beautiful women in soldier outfits, sort of. And like, so it was that sort of playfulness that was really fun. And we were all given permission you know, from the from the cinematographer and the play with color and different things, because we were trying to capture a dream. So we didn't want a logic. So the the lesson, I guess, the method was to not 
not try to explain things, I guess, because there's whenever you delve into sort of supernatural world a little bit, uh, I mean, you need rules, but the minute somebody starts to explain how the spaceship got to Earth, you just fall asleep, right? It's sort of like, yeah. oh, God, this is the worst part of the movie. So we thought, well, let's keep the explanation out and try to keep the impulse in. So I'm just curious about like how this movie came to be made because you mentioned that you were working on it for like 10 years or so. Why were you able to make it now? And like, what were the circumstances that allowed you guys to get it, get it shot? Well, it's, a, it's funny, you know, because when we were writing the script um, and it wasn't, you know, when you say 10 years, it sounds like a shocking amount of time. But really, it's <laughs> like, you know, years would go by, we wouldn't do anything. I mean, oh, I wonder what's going on with Dreamland. Let's get together. Um, but it's a movie when we were writing, we had a lot of fun doing it. And in some ways, I don't think we ever thought we would ever make it. Like it was just, you know, I would go away from our session, my session with Tony or, or getting together with Steve and Lisa and walk away and thinking, yeah, this is really fun. But I don't think anybody in their right mind is ever going to let us do this because it's just, <laughs> it doesn't make, you know, it's just sort of, it's not this or it's not. It's everything is sort of wrong about it. Through a series of circumstances, I guess the, the, the savior of the movie or the person that kind of turned the key is Jesus of Luxembourg. Uh, now, his actual name is pronounced Jesus because he's Spanish, but he lives in Luxembourg. So we affectionately uh, refer to him as Jesus of Luxembourg. <laughs> and uh, somehow he came across the script. There was a company in Los Angeles called Shore Line or Lakeshore. Yeah. Morris Ruskin really lovely guy and he kind of connected the things he connected the dots and suddenly jesus said you know he says i i like this this is fun i like the vampire and i like the the killer and i like the you know he kind of liked this world it seemed sort of fun to him and you know uh, i said yeah well you know hopefully it's fun and uh i said uh, he said well you know do you think you could shoot this in luxembourg and i had no idea really where luxembourg was i knew it was in europe but uh i said yeah sure you know um we always dreamed of going to some place exotic for us guys from Toronto, thinking anywhere is an exotic outside of Toronto. So we he brought us to Luxembourg, and it was because of his embrace, really, that uh, he provided the money and with another company, and then some Canadians came in. So yeah, it was sort of a miracle that, like, I still want, I still am amazed that we actually made it because. If you took this script to the, you know, on the rounds around the places where you usually go to, nobody would say yes. They would go, this doesn't make any sense. Why is there a vampire? Why is there two guys that are look the same? Why isn't it, you know, horror or sci-fi? You know, why isn't it one or the other, you know? So uh, I feel like really lucky that Jesus of Luxembourg came along. <laughs> But it's not just luck, Bruce. I mean, you're very accomplished. <laughs> um, I'm sure you're good in the room. I mean, what do you really attribute this, uh, the yeses to that, that you receive? Yeah, I mean, you know, he, you know, people are, when people come together, they're checking each other out. And I did have to go to Luxembourg and pitch. I pitched the film fund there. There was like a panel of eight people that, mm -hmm. that I had to go before. They, they had to be there in person and there was like a distributor and a journalist and a thing and a bureaucrat and a thing. And I, they asked me all those questions. And I remember walking out thinking, there is no way they're going <laughs> to throw the switch. 
But there was one guy on the panel who seemed to be really amused by the whole thing. So uh, I think it was because of this one champion and, of course, Jesus of Luxembourg that they, <laughs> that they said yes. Because if it wasn't for that, we would still be sitting here with a script in our hands wondering when we were going to make Dreamland. So it's sometimes, you know, films are often a very strange journey. And, you know, you come to the table or myself with some experience and, you know, people go, yeah, I think he can pull it off or he's not going to freak out or he's going to not scream and yell at people and he's going to pick some good cast. And so, you know, I'm bringing something to the table. Um, anyway, but it, this one, especially for some reason, just felt like a little bit like a miracle that this was something that was never really supposed to happen in the rational world. And through a series of very uh, fortunate circumstances, the film gods were definitely smiling and feeling a little frisky, I think. So they thought, let's let them do Dreamland. So, so after that meeting in Luxembourg, was that pretty much it as far as needing the finance, financial needs? Or did you have to bring more money in once you got that piece settled? Well, that was kind of the rock, you know, because once we got that, and we found out like two days after we had this tribunal, right? It was pretty amazing. And so uh, there's a, a producer from Vancouver, Amber Ripley, who is a very lovely and hardworking gal. So she pulled the Canadian side. And then there was another partner in, in uh, uh, Belgium, Sebastian Slens, and has a company, Velvet Films. So between the three, and that gets it starts to get kind of complex when it comes to budgets and tax credits and all this sort of counting, and it's quite sort of hellish for the producers. But you know, uh, it's how independent films are made. So uh, you know, you have to spend a certain amount in each place and cast people from different places, and you know, it all works and it's done all the time. Uh, but yeah, great people, and so we so this is why we shot a little bit in Belgium because uh, some money came from there and we did our some of our uh, editing in Toronto and then we did some of our sound so you kind of spread it around uh, but you realize you know when you go to a faraway place for me going to Luxembourg you know you're the visitor I'm not bringing my usual team with me or my people so I'm sort of the guest there and I was it was really fun to be in a, another land and working with other talent did you bring any of your crew with you or was it literally just you and the producers and the actors and everyone else was from Luxembourg? I brought an AD friend, uh, Keith White, who did a great job because uh, they told me they, you know, they, they go through all their, you know, co-production stuff and they go, well, you can bring one person with you. Like you can pick a designer or a, you know, a DP or somebody. And I thought, well, anybody that's a department key like a creative key they're going to have their people and their people are really important to them like a dp is going to want to have his focus puller and his thing so i thought well why don't i just bring my ad because he's the you know he's one of my one of the allies you have on a set and i'll just we'll just get everybody else from there so the producers presented us with different uh you know a few different people for each department and then i got to talk to them and then we picked our people Forgive me for taking a step back, but the Canadian film industry does seem a little bit more akin to the European industry than to the United States film industry. Um, I don't know if you have a different opinion. I'd love to hear it. But um, have you done a lot of co-productions or are you receiving a lot of governmental support as you make projects throughout the years? 
Well, in, in Canada, there's this thing called Telefilm, which is kind of like a culture bank. And so they, they are involved in developing uh, scripts and different things. So you can, uh, on occasion, get... It's fantastic, actually. I mean, you, you know, it's a bit of a rigmarole to do it, but you can raise money for a, a writer to write a first draft of a script. So it's, it's kind of amazing. And then they will come in as investors in a film, sort of maybe to 30%. You know, but you, you've pretty much got to bring the other pieces to them. So in this case, we're like, well, we got Belgium, we got Luxembourg, and it was sort of a no-brainer for them. So it's an investment, and it's all very, you know, as business as can be with a bureaucratic sort of institution. So for an independent filmmaker, it's a really sort of an amazing place to be, because I know independent filmmakers in the States, they don't have that same support. It seems to be coming more from like sort of private foundations and uncles and, you know, <laughs> certain right. studios have their little indie sort of outfit, or there's other, you know, there's people like Christine Vachon in mm -hmm. New York City. I don't know how she does it, or, you know, Ted Hope and these guys, they've done it for years and, you know, they're using international money, I'm sure, you know, a lot of the times. Uh, I'm always curious when I see it like a Jim Jarmusch film or a Richard Linklater film and like, ah, oh, I wonder how that was put together. Uh, and often you'll see like, oh, they some money from Japan or there's some French money or there's some. So I do think, you know, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself an expert at all at sort of indie film financing. Uh, but I, I can say that as an independent filmmaker in Canada, there's, you know, everybody bitches and complains, but there's a pretty good support, you know, it's not like they'll just give it away, but, you know, there's arts councils and there's um, some private money, like I raised money privately out of Toronto from crazy millionaires slash gangsters. I've, you know, <laughs> raised money from English television stations and French distributors. You know, so every project is sort of different. But yes, in, in Canada, there is an effort to support the arts because we sit beside the United States, which is like this giant entertainment behemoth. So there's a kind of a notion in the, in the government's eyes that if we don't sort of nurture our own novelists, musicians, uh, actors, talent, we'll just be American. And there's I mean, nothing wrong with being an American, but when you're your own sort of thing, you want to have some of your own thing. <laughs> so you've had a lot of projects over the years, and I'm sure you've worked with like lots of different types of ways of getting the funding for these projects. Like you said, like, have you found that you're able to go back to some of the same people, um, like maybe five years, 10 years later to fund a, a new project? Or do you find that like your money's always coming from someplace new? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think because you have you build up a track record, yes, you can go back to people, and not just the um, maybe not just the investors themselves, but sometimes the producers that do that job. Like uh, that's the nice thing about sort of getting to a point where you've done a bunch of stuff. You've got relationships with people. Uh, it's really helpful if you've made a film that's made everybody really rich. Then they're really excited when you come back with the new one. But if it's um, you know, I've just made films that have kind of just, you know, they kind of, none of them has made lots and lots of money, but, you know, they've played around. And so, uh, yes, there is a bit of repeat business, but 
it's always there's always a kind of a new element for some reason. I, I depends where it's being shot, or depends on the genre, it depends on who's in it. That there always seems to be at least you know new a new player. But it sure is nice when you build on the relationships of your past and you know I will always do that I will always go back to whether it's a private investor or a distributor or somebody that's helped put up some money like for instance actually Jesus of Luxembourg good example uh, so we've gone back to him with a project and he seems pretty excited about it so it's like yeah so if and then because now we know how we work together and it's really no, it's not easier, but it's, you know what the, you're dealing with. And maybe you save a little bit of time and nonsense, you know, because you know how to, you know, get drunk together, you know how to fight, you know how to be on set, you know how to solve problems. So it's, you're kind of a bit more like family and it is really great. And that's why I think you do see certain partnerships that go on for years in, in a creative way, in a, in a, in a business way. I mean, that's, if you can't, if you're lucky and you find that it's, you want to hold on to that for sure. So what drives you then, Bruce? I like, first of all, I'd love to be on one of your sets because you just seem like the most lovely human, but I would love to see like, what got you into this business? What got you to start making films and what causes you to keep going? When I was a teenager, my uncle gave me this camera and I remember like a little super camera. And I think the thing that sort of blew my mind with that, and I was like 15 at the time or something, is that it wasn't so much about what we were making or what we wanted to make or what, you know, because we just, we, at, at that age, every, you know, you love movies, you love, you know, uh, everybody does pretty much. But I guess what sort of uh, made me kind of sit up and take notice is that if you had a camera in your hands, you could get people to do just about anything. And I thought that was a really interesting notion. Because I was a terrible guitar player, and I probably, if I was better, I'd be in a in a some some kind of terrible cover band touring up and down the East Coast. Uh, but I, I there is something kind of magical about that that the camera became the sort of passport to adventure. Like it, you could get people to dress up and do things. You could get into certain places by saying, "Hey, we're making this movie, and could we get into this empty stadium on a Sunday when nobody's there?" or, you know, get into this interesting building. Um, so it really started me to think that this little box with a thing in it, like a little lens and a, like, well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty magical little thing like it. And so that's the thing that fuels me because it sure is fun. You know, people often say, what's your favorite part about? I mean, I do, I must say, I do enjoy the set. I do enjoy the kind of camaraderie and the socialness of it and the, uh, you know, it's a social art. It's not a solitary art. It's a very much a collaborative process. And I think I enjoy that the most and whether it's collaborating with the writer and then with the, you know, producer and then on the set. So on the set, it's sort of like the full house. Um, so probably, you know, uh, I'd like the, fact that filmmaking takes you places you know like it takes you on adventures it takes you on trips it takes you into people's hearts it takes you into people's lives uh, I'm kind of like a scattershot guy so I kind of like the uh, the many aspects of something uh, rather than being the master of one thing about it and then you know it's storytelling and it's people and 
So I'm not quite sure. I don't know if I have like a big message for people or I'm like a writer in that sense or a great social sense of social justice or a great sort of uh, thing. But I, I am curious. I am. I do love, you know, a good tale. And I, I don't know. So it's, uh, it's probably about as much fun as you could have at any job. I mean, I just feel really blessed that, you know, you can get paid to do this. And, uh, you know, it's hard work. Don't, you know, like it's, it's 24 seven pretty much, but I love what I do. So I don't mind working. What advice would you have to, you know, younger filmmakers, maybe those who've had like one or two uh, features under their belt or just getting started in their career? Like what advice do you have to them to like kind of end up making thing after thing after thing and having a sustainable career? This is a very sneaky question because both Ulrich and I are feature filmmakers with one or two features under our belts. So basically you're you're saying to us. (laughs) I would say story, story, story. I mean, you know, just lately, because I've I've never really been a writer, writer, like I've always worked with writers, you know, my whole career, and I've had the writers on set. So I've I've had this real, you know, writers that were way better writers than I was. Lately, I've been writing, doing some writing myself, and it's, it's, you know, it's really hard work, and it's really great, but I think it's a great thing to do as a young filmmaker is to write. But because I've been writing, I've been kind of going back to all the storybooks, like the McKee and the Save the Cat and the thing. Mm. And there's a great book by a guy named Alexander McKendrick, and I would recommend that as an inspirational thing. He was a British director that came to L.A. after the disaster of The Sweet Smell of Success. Not, a, not an artistic disaster, but a commercial disaster. And he mm. taught at one of the California film schools. And this is kind of a collection of his um, sort of, you know, his talks to the, to the students. And they're really inspiring. But, you know, what it comes down to is story. Story, 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 story. And um, I can't stress that enough that I think what I see is a lot of filmmakers, they're trying to be the singer-songwriters, partly because economics and partly because (laughs) of this, because then they don't seek out a writer, right? They don't, they write it themselves, which is fine. But I would say 80% of the time, the scripts are, 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 that's the thing that's most lacking in the production is the script. It's this foundation. Everything else is easy after that. It's not, you know, so I, I couldn't stress enough that, you know, that if you're writers, have some people that you are tough editors that will fucking nail you to the, you know, just, and really work that story. I can't tell you how many times I've been in an editing room trying to fix the third act because we didn't work it out at the script stage. And this is not the time you want to do that. So yeah. it is really, I can't, you know, any that would be a thousand percent advice is really and then look at the chamber pieces look at the masters that make these films that are set in like a room like uh come back to the five and dime jimmy dean by altman or a bunch of bergman films persona two two chicks on a, in a cabin which is one of the greatest films ever made my dinner with andre two guys having dinner and a waiter uh like these are kind of things to look for inspiration because the trap, a lot of young filmmakers, and I'm guilty of this too to this day, is there's 40 locations and there's 23 actors and there's this and there's that. So your 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 wire is stretched really thin, and suddenly so you know, and unless you have just the most brilliant script in the world, 
it's it's uh, your resources are so stretched and and then the thing maybe comes out a little flat or it's not quite so I think and then so yeah and the last thing I would say is is the the, the relationship between the director and the producer is like a songwriting team and you know traditionally it's a kind of you know in the popular media it's a sort of looked upon sometimes as an adversarial relationship because one is the money and one is the creative but that's sort of bullshit because producers are extremely creative people and directors should fucking pay some more attention to the time and the money and figure out what can what can be done with what we have and it's that relationship that is the thing that's going to solve your production problems and it's going to make it's going to define your production it's going to define how you shoot it what you shoot it on who's going to shoot it so these are all you know if you're lucky to have these sort of um, mentor people that can sort of really push you on your script or find a writer like when i was starting out i was writing 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 and finally my friend says you know you're a terrible writer you know, you know, <laughs> you're just, you know we were working on this film called highway it's called highway 61 about a guy that goes down to new orleans anyway chased by the devil and was, he said well there's lots of good shit in it there's a devil and there's a singing family and there's like New Orleans whores and there's this and, you know, but the, but your structure is, is, is weak, you know, your, and your characters are weak. You got a lot of good stuff in there, but there's no real sort of, and so I said, well, where, you know, this was, I'm in Toronto. I'm not in Los Angeles or any place where there's a tradition of storytelling and thing. Uh, so my friends, I said, well, where do I find a writer? I wasn't from an artistic family. I had no connection to anybody in the business. And he goes, go to the theater. I'm like, oh, okay. Cause Toronto had a lot of little, you know, it's not like cats or the phantom, just a whole bunch of these little <laughs> theater companies, right? Of people doing crazy shit and beautiful stuff for like audiences of 25 people. But there was a lot of those places. So I found a couple of people that I still work with to, to this day that were like, huh, I get paid nothing to work in the theater. And if I worked on a film, I might get paid, you know, nothing plus 5% or something. And I'd get a little <laughs> bit more in independent film. So I found these writers that were a kind of a godsend to me that took what I had written as a bunch of cool stuff and within it was like christmas i remember getting my getting the thing back from them and it was like oh i get it story and it goes back to story 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 and these were people from the theater they had studied theater they had studied plays they were directors and writers and it's a shocking it's to me it's still shocking in the film business how many directors know nothing about acting and and very little about story you know because uh, it's easy to get distracted and and caught up in style and lenses and the business of it and the politics and casting and so yeah i mean for you guys i mean hey if you ever want to send a script and we do this thing sometimes we have once a month where we go we got eight writers around the table and everybody reads a script the script and all these writers talk about your script so wow. it's, like, it's like having a rough cut screening for your screenplay and i and i, and I tell you like after so many times in the editing room of like, fuck, the first act is just a piece of shit. It's like too long or the thing. And it's like, we could have done this in the script stage, but we didn't. We could have rush to production. We thought we were geniuses. This is going to be great. But we didn't, we didn't get the hard news from showing our script to, to 15 
you know, it's not easy to get somebody to read a script because nobody really wants to read a script. It's, it's not a thing that you really want to do when you're kicking back on a Sunday. Um, but I can't, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are writers. I mean, but, and if you are, that's amazing and that's great. I really encourage that. But I think there is a deep, deep structure and a deep, deep talent to writers and, and a good writer on your team or as an editor can really bring a fucking lot to your project. And it's always a bit scary because then you don't want somebody to take it over or to change it or to make it their own morality. You want to protect, you know, what you what's eccentric about it. You know, like a dreamland is a very eccentric thing, but we spent a lot of time in the sort of structure of it because it went through many incarnations in the script stage that, uh, I mean, it still seems pretty crazy, but you should have seen the first draft. <laughs> so focus on story, find good writers, find good producers, and just make the best story you possibly can out of your movie. Don't worry about agents, managers, any of that stuff. I mean, that comes and that's really great. But to me, it's kind of like, and don't wait for permission either. I mean, when we started, we were, you know, there's a certain luck in sort of being outside the gates of Hollywood because we had fucking no idea. I'd never even know what an agent was <laughs> or, a, or a thing or a, a movie star. I mean, uh, you know, we would use people from the theater. And, you know, you start, you, know, you want to go somewhere, but if you start and you're building a base, people will help you out. People will want to see you win. People, because they had somebody help them out when they were starting out, you know? And there's nothing like the energy that you can bring, you two, as you're doing your next production, because you're just like, fuck, we've done a couple, and that's amazing, and now we're kind of on the bus. But the next one is probably the most important one of all, because for the first one or two, it's just make it, just the fact that you finished it is a miracle. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it doesn't matter if it's any good. It's just like people are impressed. They're like, wow, they said they were going to do it and they, they fucking did it. That's amazing. And that's no easy feat. I, you know, we both know how, 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 you know, what's involved and the crazy shit that you go through to kind of get to the end. But now that you've sort of done it a couple times, well, that's a sweet spot you're in. So really, now it's story time. Now it's like, okay, what can we, maybe we have something in the cooker. Maybe we find something. Maybe we adapt something, maybe we remake something, maybe we are inspired by an actor that we love or a place that we love. You know, and if you want to send up one of your scripts to our writer's table, we'd be happy to, you know, include you virtually in our little gang. And I know that the writers oh, wow. that oh, so we nice. do it once a month and it's people, and there are people, you know, like uh, the, there's a guy, Vincenzo Natale, and he, like, he directs episodes of, like, big TV shows like uh, one of Westworld and he, you know, oh, wow. he did a, just recently a film for Netflix called In the Tall Grass, which was like a Stephen King or son of oh, Stephen yeah. King's thing. Like he did this movie called Cube and another one. He's kind of a sci-fi guy, but he's like, so Vincenzo comes and Adam Egoin is another, you know, uh, Toronto guy. We got to, you know, because of the fucking pandemic and stuff, we've all... But I think probably in June we'll we'll get back to it. We don't really, you know, it's all fairly random what we pick in the scripts and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, just you to know, participate would be incredible. Or just come and you just, you know, script, you know, yeah, no, it's and it's just fun, I, you know. And the writers all walk away kind of inspired, and you know, you just get a kind of a because it's different than you're showing it to writers, you're not showing it to 
agents or, or actors or managers or producers yet. You're just kind of going, here's, here's what we've got. Here's where we're at. These are all writers who are, some are more experienced than others, but hope, the hope is that you can walk away with like, huh, like everybody seemed to think that the opening was killer and that this character is amazing, but they all seem to think that that other character was not, they didn't quite know what their function was or, you know, like they'll have a couple of things that you go, fuck, that helps so much. I'm glad you asked me about the kind of what would you say to people because when I was starting out, I had no idea what a theme was. I had no idea what a kind of act one, two, three, or the reason that things are the way they are. And it doesn't mean you have to do it like that, but if you know the kind of dramatic structural kind of rules, then you, you know, it's just gonna help. It's just gonna make you punch above your weight and you're just gonna slay it at the festivals and at the thing, like you're just, there's nothing like, because in the end, you know, people don't give a shit if your film is a hundred million or fucking hundred dollars, but if they feel moved by it, or they feel that somehow it's authentic, uh, they'll embrace it, you know, and run with it. And, and we could probably talk to you for four hours, but uh, we have to get things wrapped up here. And, and we finish with final five questions, kind of how we started the conversation. So I'll go first. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Uh, first film I ever made was called Our Glorious Dead. It was a super eight 40 minute film where zombies attack the high school and kill all the teachers. And I think it's the best thing I've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> You're the only person we've talked to who likes the first thing that they've ever made. <laughs> What's the best piece of filmmaking advice you've ever received? If it's not about love, it's not worth doing. Uh, quote from Norman Jewison, director of Rollerball, uh, wow. you know, uh, uh, Moonstruck, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, Russians are coming uh, in the heat of the night. Yeah. So his was like, you know what? Do good work and the gold will follow. If you don't, you know, you have to love what you're doing. You can't do it for the money. You can't do it for the position. You can't do it for the status. It's like, it's just too much fucking work and it just takes so much out of you. Uh, and I always thought that was great advice. Uh, finish what you start. That's from my dad. That's pretty, always very handy. Nice. And uh, and the last piece of advice, I was was curious about it for a long time, but Francis Ford Coppola was once asked that question, uh, what advice would you give to a young filmmaker? And he said, have a family. And I thought, nice. that, and I thought that was great. I love that. I don't know if you can hear my son like banging his head against the wall right outside my door. <laughs> there you go. You're on your way, girl. <laughs> Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yes, I think I would love to make a rock and roll western one of these days. Ooh. I want to see it. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know, goals, I don't know to tell the truth, you know, to try to really not be full of shit and uh, really try to have a movie that touches, really touches people and, 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 and is something, it's about something true, you know? Mm. It's not just to do it, it's not just to say, hey, I made a movie and it's really fun. But if you could make a movie that actually, you know, changes the world or changes somebody. That's a, that's a pretty remarkable feat. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give your younger self? Uh, story, story, story. That would be <laughs> that's <nice>. right. <laughs> and, 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 and learn about actors, you know. 
I would be story and, and study acting. And then lastly, is making movies hard? Uh, it is hard, but if it was easy, everybody would do it. And it's hard, but it's pleasurable. You know, sometimes, you know, hard is not a bad thing. Hard is just hard. You know, to get through it to the other side, you, you feel proud and you feel accomplished because it is hard. It is fucking hard. And it is time. And it is, like, <laughs> insane. And it is a lifestyle. And it is a sacrifice. And it is a lot of these things. But if your aim is true, uh, all the hard work, you know, pays off on occasion. Where can we find you? Do, do you want to send anyone to specific websites or social media platforms, Bruce? Well, as you can see, I can barely turn on the computer, so I don't really have <laughs> social media. <laughs> so uh, one of these days I'll get around to having social media. So no, I don't know. Like, check out some of our movies that we've made in the past, uh, Pontypool or this movie is broken or um, hardcore logo is a favorite of people. It's a rock and roll movie. So I would, you know, see they're, they're around. Um, and then everyone should of course see dreamland right away. Right. Yes. Get it on VOD. Yeah. Get high and go see dreamland. You know? Yes. <laughs> After seeing it once, I, I think watching it high would be a great way to watch it again. Cause what a trip. You know, I really appreciate you guys taking the time and talking to me and watching Dreamland and kind of doing what you're doing, putting it out there. That's awesome. Oh, no, our pleasure. Yeah, and thank uh, thanks for the fantastic conversation and all the advice. It's very, very helpful, man. You know, um, and I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Great. Great. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks to Bruce McDonald for being on the show. One of my favorite guests of all time, I'm going to have to say out loud. Um, <laughs> let's all go out and support and watch Dreamland on VOD and watch all of other all of Bruce's other work. Uh, special thanks to Judy Merrick of Katrina One PR for making it all happen. All right. Well, please check out our website, makingitmoviesishard.com, where you can find links of things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I'm at, at Liz Manischel on Twitter, and you are? Ulrich B. on Twitter, Instagram, and I'm Ulrich on Facebook, too. If you like the show, tell a friend. Help us get the word out. Leave a review. Uh, last but not least, special thank you to our producers, Greg Holtman and Joshua Sterling Bragg, edit editor Allison Stoney, and the whole Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. And we will talk to you all next week. I think every week I say that I can't speak. I realize you now... It's like not, it's not, it's like, ev it's not a trend. It's like my, the way I talk. Yeah.